Hello, you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. I'm Ellen Buchan, Communications and Insights Assistant for AMBA. I had a phone call interview with Ifosa Jamar, the Senior Research Fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation. We spoke about the different types of innovation and how innovation can be best used in emerging markets, as well as how that relates to business schools. Here is that conversation. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your career, please? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I, you know, my name is Afoso Dromo. I am um, currently the uh, Global Prosperity Lead at the Clayton Christensen Institute. Um, it's interesting how I got to where I am. Um, I'm originally from Nigeria. Um, I moved to the States uh, about 20 years ago in, in the year 2000 to study uh, engineering. Now, when I moved here, I had no intentions of ever going back to Nigeria or even uh, just you know doing anything uh, remotely related to what I'm doing now. Um, after I graduated college, I began my career as an engineer, um, and I actually didn't visit home for about eight years. Um, it wasn't until 2008 uh, that I went back home for the first time. Uh, uh, since I got to the U.S. And that happened because um, I started reading books on development, economics, and poverty. And I just um, was struck by uh, how much the suffering there was in the world, and, and more specifically in uh, emerging economies. Um, in, you know, Nigeria, which is where I'm from, is, is one of them. Um, and so, you know, I got a group of friends together, and we started a nonprofit organization. And we went, I went back to Nigeria, built wells, and did a couple of other projects, uh, give out mosquito nets and so on. And I did that uh, every year uh, until I, I landed in business school. Uh, the reason I transitioned from sort of the uh, NGO, nonprofit world to studying uh, uh, business and uh, going to businesses, um, I began looking around at prosperous economies and, and the ones that really had uh, something going for them. And I, I found out they all had this unique thing uh, about them. They all had businesses that were employing people, that were creating value, um, that were making you know societies prosperous. And for me, um, that signaled the importance of business. Um, and so I was fortunate to apply and get into Harvard Business School, which is where I met Professor uh, Clayton Christensen, who you know, unfortunately passed away in January of this year. Um, and after I, I met him at uh, Harvard Business School, um, shortly after graduation, I began working with him. And so that's sort of a quick summary of how I got from um, you know, an engineer to now I'm uh, at his nonprofit think tank uh, writing um, and sort of spreading the word about how important innovation is uh, for development. Wow, that's so inspiring. You've um, recently written a book, The Prosperity Paradox, How Innovation Can Lift Nations Out of Poverty. Can you tell us a little bit about the concept that it explores? Yes, yes. So uh, <laughs> I, Professor Christensen and I uh, decided that we would uh, uh, write this book uh, that you mentioned, uh, The Prosperity Paradox. And, you know, what we 
what we did was we really looked at uh, poor countries and prosperous countries. Um, and we studied the literature of the books out there that write about poverty, and, and we found out, you know, many books write about poverty from the through the lens of, you know, how can we help poor people lead more efficient lives? Um, but we wanted to I want to ask a different question. Our question was more so, how can we create prosperity? Um, because that, that really needs to be the focus. Not how can we help alleviate poverty, but how can we actually create prosperity so that uh, a Nigeria or a Kenya or a Bangladesh becomes uh, a South Korea, uh, becomes uh, a Japan um, or, or a France? I mean, that that's the question to ask. And we... Um, we found out the critical role innovation plays, um, but 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 when you step back and look at how people think and talk about innovation, you find out that you know it means different things to different people, and so for the purposes of having a common language to explain things, um, you know we define innovation as the process by which you transform inputs of lower value into outputs of higher value. And the reason we do that is because uh, we want to show that with resources in a particular community and people, you can actually develop innovations that create more value in those communities. After we defined innovation in the book, um, the core concept really was not all innovations are created equal. Um, and we described the power of a particular type of innovation called market-creating innovations. And so I'll briefly explain uh, the different types of innovations and, and what market-creating innovations mean. Efficiency innovations um, are the first type of innovation. These are innovations that enable you to do more with less. And so, you know, when a company um, does some outsourcing or a company does uh, manufacturing in a different uh, region, where it can take advantage of low wages or uh, leverages automation, that's an efficiency innovation. Typically, the company would sell the product to the same customers for less cost uh, associated with it, but it it, it creates uh, cash flows for the company. The company doesn't necessarily translate the costs to uh, existing customers. Uh, it, it targets existing customers. Um, and so efficiency innovations typically lead to uh, more cash flows for the companies, but uh, from a development standpoint, it tends to, to decimate jobs. And so just look at regions in the U.S. that were heavy manufacturing areas. Um, many, many of those manufacturing jobs have been outsourced, and many of those communities are, are now struggling. Uh, Detroit is, is, is an example. Uh, many in the Rust Belt of the United States are, are an example. Uh, that's efficiency innovations. Uh, the second type are what we call sustaining innovations. So sustaining innovations um, make good products better. Now, these are innovations uh, that keep companies and economies vibrant. And so you would have um, you know, a new smartphone, for instance. Right? You get a new camera, you get more memory, you get a faster processor. Those are all efficiency innovations. These are innovations that are targeted at the existing market and the most demanding of customers. Companies can typically sell these are um, sustaining innovation for a little bit more money and a little bit more margin. Um, so that's the second type. Now, they're important, um, but from a, a development standpoint, uh, they don't really create 
new uh, substantial growth uh, because you know a smartphone company doesn't need an entirely new manufacturing line doesn't need a new distribution doesn't need a new sales channel to sell its product Uh, similarly you know uh, a a new um, new heated seats on your car or or adaptive cruise control or some of these new features we have on our cars you don't the car companies don't need an entirely new uh, distribution, uh, sales, and so on, uh, channels to sell these products. Uh, but those are, are sustaining innovations. Uh, the third uh, type, and, and uh, the, the ones that, that are really critical for development are what we call market-creating innovations. And these are innovations that transform complicated and expensive products into products that are simple and affordable. And this makes the products so much more available to many more people in society. And so a simple example of this would be uh, when you look at just the proliferation of uh, mobile telephony all across the world uh, over the past two decades, that's an example of a market creating innovation. Um, now, we'll focus in on, on lower income countries now, because I think that's where you can sort of see the explosion and a lot of the impact. Um, mobile phones were almost non-existent 20 years ago in you know many countries in Africa and South Asia uh, other low low to middle income income regions but through the ingenuity of many market creating innovators uh, such as uh, Mo Ibrahim uh, of Sudan uh, Strive Masiwa um, Zimbabwe, what you find is these innovators went into these markets, they created entirely new innovations that were contextually relevant in those markets. They made the cell phone simple and affordable, developed new business models that enabled any and everyone to be able to afford them. Uh, And now what you have is this mass explosion of uh, a new mobile telephony market. And that has not only created a lot of wealth for these innovators, but it's led to a ton of new jobs, almost a new economy in a sense. Uh, In in the continent of Africa alone, uh, the mobile phone industry uh, is worth close to $200 billion, uh, provides taxes of $10 to $20 billion a year to different governments and supports uh, three and a half to four million jobs. Um, and, and so what we try to illustrate in the book is the power of market creating innovations and how that is really critical for long-term and sustainable development uh, because it makes things more accessible, more affordable to so many more people, creates jobs, provides taxes, and begins to really foster a culture of innovation and entrepreneurship. So what can business schools do to help promote this market-creating innovation in the countries which they operate in, but also abroad? Yeah, I mean, I think business schools play a critical role. Um, When I look at the trajectory of my career, uh, it's impossible for me to talk about it without my time at uh, Harvard Business School. You know, I originally wanted to uh, go get a PhD in economics, uh, and then I had a, 
lunch with an economics professor and he 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 talked to me for about 20 minutes and he was like yeah you don't want to get a phd in economics based on what i'm hearing you say you actually want to go on the ground create businesses and add add a ton of value um and so i think the the first thing uh business schools can do in that regard is just understand the role that they play um, or the role they can play, actually, um, they may play or play it or not, but the role they can play in shaping future generation business leaders. You know, when you look at most business leaders today that lead some of the largest uh, organizations, um, you find they went to business school of some kind. If they didn't go get an MBA, uh, master's in business administration, they got an executive um, MBA or an executive program. And so business schools are pivotal with regard to shaping the mindset of um, the future generation of leaders. Now, number one, they have to understand that role. Um, after understanding that role, then they have to educate these leaders on the value of business and innovation more specifically. Um, not just on the metrics, you know, not just on accounting and how you get you know, larger market share, finance and capital structure and so on. But what do all those metrics signify? Well, what is the point of actually all those metrics? It's creating value for humanity. And so in doing that, have to tie business to the activity of innovation and with a really simple categorization scheme of understanding the different types of innovations and how they impact society and people uh, and organizations differently. Um, I think business schools can really convey this message to the future generation of business leaders. And as a result, we can begin to see uh, students uh, come out of business school more educated about the role of business in society and the role of innovation in business uh, so that many more people can benefit from uh, the value that innovation uh, creates. Do you think the business schools can help encourage and support maybe like small business or people who are innovators in their communities? I mean, that's certainly certainly the hope. Um, you know, I think business schools are currently uh, geared. M many business schools, when you look, when you step back and look at who they typically serve or help, um, it, it's the larger corporations. And the reason for that is simple. When you look at the cost structure of the business school, of a typical business school, at least, uh, you know, you, you're located somewhere in a city. You're you've got buildings, you've got uh, faculty, you've got classrooms, and uh, you've got an entire system that defines a cost structure that pushes out a majority of uh, the people, uh, small businesses or you know, uh, smaller type of entrepreneurs who would benefit from gaining access to that knowledge um, that you, you, you're disseminating. Um, and so the cost structure prevents them from going after many people in their communities who would benefit. Now, what they can do, what many business schools can do, is begin to really rethink uh, what is the purpose of uh, of every single resource we have at this business school, um, and 
what is the core mission and purpose of the business school? I mean, if the mission is to uh, to to disseminate this knowledge that can help business leaders become more productive, then the question now has to be, how else can we disseminate this knowledge? Who are the business leaders in our community that we can help with the dissemination of this knowledge. And asking those different questions gives them an entirely different way uh, to think about their value proposition, to think about the work that they can do to assist not just the big corporations that send executives for executive education programs or you know the, the folks who would go in, uh, take two years out, get an MBA, um, and get a, a decent, uh, high-flying job. But they can begin to think about the smaller businesses that can benefit from one or two modularized uh, 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 sessions or classes that can help them with a little bit of marketing, uh, a little bit of uh, finance, uh, a little bit of accounting, uh, help them manage their books better. Um, and so just fundamentally rethinking what their power purpose is, uh, and then I would say modularizing some of the classes or sessions that they teach in new ways can actually help them create a ton of value in the community. What would you, um, like advice be to someone who maybe wants to go to business school to change sector to try and help the community and be involved in these innovation and small businesses? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the first question to ask um, if, if people are thinking about going to business school um, primarily to, to help um, small businesses or change small businesses is, um, you know, every organization has a cost structure, every individual has a cost structure, which is essentially made up of, um, you know, the things uh, that uh, define uh, your expenses, right? So your your rent, your your bills, your debt, and so on. Um, you, you know, you don't want to go to a business school where you uh, accrue a ton of debt because that forces you, in a way, to go get the big jobs at the banks so or the consulting firms and so on when your focus is on helping smaller business. And so you, you first have to do that analysis and that estimation. And when you've done that, uh, the question then becomes, do you really need to go to a business school for that? Right. I, I think it's important to ask that question uh, because, again, business schools provide a ton of value. Um, but if you're able to disaggregate the value they provide um, and figure out ways to get that value without accruing the cost, then that would be the route um, to go. Um, now, it doesn't mean you don't interface with business schools, but many business schools are now innovating and creating programs that enable people to experience them without you know, quitting their jobs um, completely and going full-time two-year or one-year residential program. So even some of the top business schools are innovating in this way. Harvard Business School now has a program called HBS Online. And it's got a growing list of classes that 
people can take now. Um, and so if I cared about small businesses, um, before enrolling in a business school, what I might do is go and check, you know, HBS online or other business schools and say, well, what classes um, do they have to offer that might help me? Um, that way, I don't have to quit my job. Uh, I can sign up for these classes. They are not a, as expensive as, as going uh, for the whole program. Um, and you can begin to learn. And if you feel like, you know, this is not uh, sufficient for what I want to do, then you can begin to consider uh, a full-time program or perhaps a, a part-time MBA program. But I think initially what I would do is scour the internet um, for a list of free programs or uh, low-cost programs that can give me a taste for some of the things I would like to learn. That's great advice. And just to ask you about, I guess, what everyone's talking about right now, but um, what innovations from organisations do you, have you seen that you think will have the most positive impact on those affected by the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, I mean, so that's a that's a brilliant question because it's it's one that you know I have to answer um, uh, by focusing on multiple sectors. I mean, when we look at just the um, work uh, world, uh, what does business look like? What does work look like? The idea of uh, telework um, is now front and center. The idea that um, I don't have to go into work. I can do a lot of my work calls um, from home, from a coffee shop. Um, well, maybe not a coffee shop during COVID-19, but um, you know, I don't have to go in. Uh, I think that's one that is going to really transform the way we work. Now, the notion of video conferencing and um, uh, tele teleconferencing is one. When you take that model and apply it to um, many other sectors, what you find is uh, we will begin to think about how we do healthcare. Um, so many uh, doctor's appointments uh, have been uh, have been transformed from in person to something you can do either either over the phone or uh, or again on on the on the, on the web. Um, so that's that's another one. And then we've got innovations coming out, um, different uh, different uh, hospitals or clinics are, are actually um, testing this out. And I foresee a, a transition to that. Education is another one. Um, now, education is tricky because when you look at, uh, the, you know, the K through 12 or the, the primary school and secondary school, the, the purpose isn't only to uh, disseminate knowledge to children, but it's also to have a safe place where your children are when parents go to work. And so uh, you can't completely transform education to online, but what, what you will see is improvement in efficiencies in the ways uh, that uh, schools are able to to teach students. Um, and so things like a snow day or when there's a storm and they have to close school, and if they would have disrupted uh, school activities significantly prior to COVID-19, because of what we are learning today, 
uh, chances are they would not be uh, disrupted as much. Uh, innovations uh, that promote personalized learning, um, where students are able to uh, leverage uh, technology in the classroom uh, with the help of a of a teacher that can provide um, some one on one one on one um, um, time uh, as uh, that that matches the students. Uh, level, uh, we we will begin to see those innovations uh, come come forward. You know, I think there are some things we can't really change with regard to um, you know what's happening with COVID nineteen. I mean, you know, you can't really change distribution. Uh, if you have to move something from point A to point B. You can't move it digitally. <laughs> you know, I might order something on Amazon or a website, but that thing still has to get to my house. Um, and so we might see a move to um, e-commerce. But again, e-commerce is really the front end interface that enables me get access to products and services. The fundamental infrastructure necessary to get those products to my location still have to exist and that's different from you know healthcare where the, the actual value is really the knowledge um, and so whenever you can digitize the value completely i think uh, covid19 is going to lead us in that direction when you can't completely digitize the value what you'll see is the digitization of the value chain um, where you can and then the other parts of the value chain uh, will remain as they are. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been really interesting. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much to you, Fossa, for having that fascinating conversation with me. If you'd like some more thought leadership, visit www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition or look out for more ambition podcasts.